It's Wednesday, August 31st, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's one and only Virginia Hobbs Carpenter, distinguished policy fellow in journalism, but I am not the only Hoover fellow doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to Hoover's website, hoover.org, and check it out for yourself. You click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Go over to where it says multimedia, and that's going to give you a menu of our podcasts. You can sign up and follow uh, any and all of them if you want to. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcaster inbox once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is John Yu. John's a Hoover Institution visiting fellow. He's also the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a non-residential senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Professor Yu has written 10 books, including Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. If you're a news junkie like me, you know John Yu from his insightful writing in the likes of the Wall Street Journal and the National Review, as well as in many appearances on Fox News. You recognize his voice not just from his past appearances on this podcast, but also law talk that he does with the inestimable Richard Epstein. John, thanks for coming on my humble little podcast. Oh, thank you. And if you listen to Law Talk, mostly what you get is Richard Epstein's voice, not mine. <laughs> yeah, that's co-starring John Yu. <laughs> okay, John, we're going to start with breaking news here in the Golden State in California. The Senate, the state Senate passing a bill that would uh, create a state-run council with the authority, John, to raise wages at fast food locations across California. These are fast food chains, John, with more than 100 locations nationally. So yes, they're targeting your beloved Golden Arches. Um, one thing the council could do, John, it would raise the minimum wage to $22 at fast food joints, which would not surprise me if you know economics means that the fast food operators would in turn raise prices. I've seen estimates saying that fast food prices would go up by 20%, let's say. So your McRib is going to cost over four bucks now. Uh, this does beg an interesting question. John Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who may or may not sign this bill, he wants to run for president or so we think by his uh, national machinations. Uh, one thing we know about Governor Newsom, John, he um, is a product of Marin County, not too far from where you are, and he is the embodiment of Bay Era metrosexuality. He drives Teslas, he probably consumes kale, he probably does goat yoga in his spare time. John, you, if you want to be president of the United States, why would you get sideways with the fast industry food? I agree. If there were any way you could piss off middle America, it's by a 20% fast food tax. And, uh, but I, I think it just shows again, this kind of guy, as you suggested, lives in this bubble where uh, you know he imposed a coronavirus lockdown on the whole state. And then he went to the French Laundry, which is the most, maybe the most expensive restaurant in California, if not the country. Right. So I, uh, on behalf of all Big Mac eaters, I, I welcome Governor Newsom to the race so we can all collectively vote against them, increasing our fast food prices. So what struck me by this, John, and we'll get to uh, President Trump and his legal travails here in a sec, because that's really a focus of this podcast. But um, I was reminded of two things as I'm reading this. Number one, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, may he rest in peace. We lost mm. him this week. Remember, Gorbachev takes power in the Soviet Union, and he looks at trying to fix the economy and just trying to turn around the Soviet existence. And he comes to the conclusion that there is too much alcohol consumption, vodka consumption. So what does he do, John? He creates a dry law which is a partial prohibition on vodka in the USSR. What happens, of course, is now the Soviet economy quickly runs out of sugar. Why? Um, Soviets buy as much sugar as they can because they want to get in the moonshine business. So for every action, there's a reaction. But what also came to mind was speaking of presidential candidates, Michael Bloomberg, when he was mayor of New York, John, and what did he want to do? He wanted to ban the sale of sodas larger than 16 ounces. And that one ended up in the courts, didn't it? Yes, that actually was struck down by a state judge. 
But I've always thought these uh, efforts by states to you know, impose syntaxes on national businesses like McDonald's or 7-Eleven or Coke, they're always, they're vulnerable to the constitution, what we call the dormant commerce clause, which says, uh, you know, Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. And so we don't mind states doing things for health and safety, but we also don't want states, you know, sort of implicitly trying to, you know, regulate the national market or trying to favor domestic products. I mean, in terms so if Governor Newsom's going to do a minimum wage on fast food, does that apply to like the bakery down the street in Berkeley that stuffs massive amounts of calories into every baked good it sells with its coffee? Right. I mean, that's the kind of discrimination that would make courts raise their eyebrows. And also it's, again, it's just another example, like you're saying, like, uh, the Marin, but the Marin County part perspective is like, oh, a lot of sugar in one's uh, croissant and it's got to be a chocolate croissant with like the little Hershey bar piece in it and not the kind that most people get. Well, that's okay for people to work for right under market wages there, but not at McDonald's. Yeah. Well, what we're doing, John, is we're just in California. We're limiting your options while you sit around waiting for your electrical vehicle to charge. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, if you drive down the five going to, from the Bay Area to Los Angeles, there is a Tesla Superstation about halfway there. And what you love about it, John, is it's surrounded by fast food joints. I, I'm I'm a little suspicious, Bill, that you know so much about Tesla charging stations. I uh, I'm proud to say I'm still fully gas, although my brother drives Teslas, and so he he I, I call he calls me from these places where he waits thirty to forty five minutes to yeah. recharge his car. I'm uh, I, I'm I'm in and out of the gas station the gas station in under five minutes. I only know it, John, because I uh, used to have a relationship in Pasadena and I'd go down to see her and that would stop there just to hit McDonald's and also fuel up my car at the same time. And it just dawned on me. I saw the Tesla Superstation across the street and I thought, this is a brilliant place to have a fast food location because yep. why? You got a captive audience across the street. <laughs> okay, final note on McDonald's. I think we've uh, concluded you will not be on this council. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> could be bribed, it would be you. No, but I'd be happy to represent anybody who wants to sue it. <laughs> Well, you'd be the one on the uh, forever losing end of a nine to one vote, I suppose. <laughs> okay, John, let's shift to what's in the news at this moment. We're doing this podcast on uh, Wednesday, the 31st, as I mentioned. Uh, the Justice Department, uh, late last night, John, literally at the midnight hour uh, uh, filing of uh, the court saying that it pursued a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, which is Donald Trump's Palm Beach residence, because it's suspected that the former president and his associates relocated and hid highly classified records. The filing, John, said over 100 documents and 13 boxes or containers with classification markings were taken from the property. Um, this includes three classified documents that were seized uh, from desk in President Trump's office. A list of seized property includes roughly 20 boxes of items, binders of photos, a handwritten note, the executive grant of clemency for Roger Stone and information about President, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. The filing, John, came amid Trump's petition for a special master to conduct an independent review of material seized from his residence, a motion which a judge said that she has, quote, preliminary intent to grant, but which the Department of Justice opposes, citing potential injury to national security interest. John, this seems to me, I'm not a lawyer, you are, so I defer to your legal wisdom here, but this seems to me the government's way of saying, Your Honor, this man cannot be trusted. So tell us what happens next in this process, John, and the greater question of whether or not this is heading to an indictment of a former president. The Justice Department's filing here uh, is a real um, effort to raise the volume above level 10 <laughs> to 11. There's no sign here of willingness to compromise. 
what I thought might have started out as an effort just to get documents back uh, that the president should not have had has turned into a confrontation in the courts where no, neither side is showing signs of uh, backing down. And, and yes, Bill, as you said, uh, the Justice Department is threatening uh, to indict either President Trump or maybe more likely people on his staff for taking federal documents in violation of the law and then obstructing efforts to recover them. Uh, as you said, the hist- in, in American history, no former president has ever been indicted for a crime and no former president has actually gone through what President Trump has already gone through, which is uh, a search warrant, a surprise search, uh, unconsented surprise search. I think to me, if I uh, the next step is uh, in a tomorrow, the judge in Florida is going to hear arguments on whether to appoint a special master. Uh, but that's just a temporary thing that could uh, delay matters. But really, the next important step is going to be while uh, Trump and the Justice Department fight over the documents is really the balls in the court of the Justice Department. Do they really want to indict President Trump for mishandling, mishandling classified documents? Uh, do they want to maybe indict or charge some of President Trump's staff uh, who told the Justice Department that they had conducted a search and handed over all the classified documents? The Justice Department uh, in this filing last night essentially suggests that they've been obstructing uh, their investigation, which is a crime. Uh, or is this just a, a preliminary, you know, sort of, flexing of the muscles on both sides in preparation for the real show, which is going to be uh, investigation into January 6th and President Trump's uh, connections to it. Well, this was a theory of Andrew McCarthy's, wasn't it? That actually the the raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago is actually more about January 6th than anything else. I, I, I also had uh, agreed with that theory, but I'm not so sure anymore because when you look at the extent of the classified documents that were recovered. Maybe this was, and I do think this was a Justice Department, even if this was a case, overreacting. But maybe this was, at the beginning, an effort just to get the documents back. It's incredible how many classified documents President Trump had hanging around Mar-a-Lago. So if you remember, uh, this really got ratcheted up in January of this year, um, because the National Archives have been trying to get these documents back, and President right. Trump has turned over, uh, had turned over voluntarily boxes of documents. And in those, that first set, the archives found just under 40 classified documents. Uh, but they, I think they have a confidential informant inside Mar-a-Lago, and so they learned that there were more. The, one of the remarkable facts that comes out of the department's filing from last night is that they recovered 100 classified documents. So that's one incredible thing. The second thing is they atta- the Justice Department attached this incredible picture, which I, I recommend everybody take a look. It's in the public record. It's right. attached to their filing. And it's a picture of, the classifi- of some classified documents, which looks like to be on the floor of President Trump's office. Now, I don't think President Trump was keeping them there, but the FBI put them out for display so they could take a picture of it. Right. And one thing you learn from that picture is that these are not like documents which are, you know, mixed up and mashed up with other kinds of pages and pictures and mementos. These documents have on them the sheet. You know, every classified document has to have this very clear, bright sheet that says it's top secret or confidential or secret. So you can't mistake that it's a classified document. 
and these documents have these on the tops. It's clear. Uh, these documents are not in this basement uh, storage room that one hears about. They were apparently in President Trump's office. Sure. Uh, they were said to be in the drawers of desks. And they have these classified sheets on them. No one would mistake those for anything but classified documents. So that's like when the department put that on the end of the word, that's like sticking the knife in. Right. I mean, that was a really, that's, 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 that's saying that the just primary here, they want to blow Trump out of the water with this filing and leave no doubts that they had legal grounds to search and that they in fact found lots well, of classified information. Well, true, John, and it adds a visual to what has largely been a print story so far where you just leak to the Washington Post and the New York Times what it is you think of the records. Now you can actually show a photo of it, but we don't know exactly what the hundred documents are. And I think to quote mm -hmm. Barack Obama, there's classified and there's classified. Mm -hmm. So this, this is an interesting thing too. I, I, I hate to <laughs> drag the readers through what's uh, class, how classification works. So I won't, but you know, uh, classify, you know, you have a document, it could be 10 pages and it has hundred paragraphs in it. Right. It could have one paragraph or even one sentence that's classified and the rest of it would be not, that's still uh, classified. So to say it's a hundred documents doesn't really tell us how important or sensitive the information is. That's why I think one thing that the Biden Justice Department could do to uh, assuage the concerns of a lot of people that President Trump's being treated unfairly is to declassify the doc, you know, redact them, but, you know, declassify some of the documents so we can tell it's not just like, a, a, you know, a handwritten letter from Kim Jong-un that says hi, and then it just mentions my atomic bombs are ready for use, which classifies the whole thing, uh, just so we can tell how serious these documents are. Now, just based on the cover sheets, some of them seem very, very important to me. Some of them are, uh, you know, for those who are interested in this, you know, there are different levels of classification and the highest level of classification is called uh, top secret slash uh, sensitive SCI. So sensitive compartmentalized information where things have like special code words and very few people in the government can know about it because it involves informants or covert action or intercept electronic intercepts of foreign communications. Those are the, you know, the crown jewels of American intelligence. And based on the FBI picture, it looks like some of the documents President Trump has are those. And those are the ones that no private citizen should have. So, John, uh, last week, a federal judge unsealed the search warrant, uh, which stated, uh, among other things, that Trump was being investigated for possibly violating the Espionage Act and two other criminal statutes having to do with presidential records. So here's the question. If you think the Justice Department is going to file any kind of charges against Trump, do you think it would be a violation of the act? Or would he be tied into a obstruction of justice? Or would he be to evoke Watergate? Would he be the proverbial unindicted co-conspirator? I think the Justice Department's filing last night suggests that at the very least, uh, President Trump's two lawyers who've been dealing with the FBI and the Justice Department are potentially guilty of some of those criminal statutes. There's, there's three of them. Yeah. One is uh, you know, mis you know, misuse of national defense information, which is a much broader category than classified information. That's the Espionage Act. Uh, I think that's a hard one to bring against President Trump. Um, the second one would just be taking away uh, and see, taking away papers you're not supposed to have, government papers you're not supposed to have. That seems to be a violation here. And then the third one is right, obstructing, trying to get them back, destroying them, mutilating them, uh, right, basically obstruction. Uh, that might be a big problem for at least the two lawyers. You could see the department charging them 
based on what they say in the application in the um, motion last night. Whether President Trump himself is personally responsible, I think that's a hard thing to charge. I think basically you would need to get one of these two lawyers. One of them's name's Cochran. Another one is named Bob. Yeah, Evan, one of them Evan, say, Evan, yeah. Evan Cochran and Christina Bob. Yes, and so I so don't ever hire a law firm called Cochran and Bob. Just a little piece of advice, to everybody. Right, and Christina so, and Christina Bob is sorry to interrupt. She's actually the custodian of Trump records. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. they're both lawyers. They're both. I think they're both appointed by Trump to be his representatives. Right. But they would basically, I think, need to testify. Oh, President Trump told me to right give some of the documents and then to hide the other ones, or because President Trump could say, "Look, you know, this is my staff." I, you know, I as Trump has said in his own filings, I told them we would cooperate. I told them if you need any, and I told the FBI in person, if you need anything, just let me know and we'll do it. Even though that might not be plausible, you know, can you pl- prove beyond a reasonable doubt that President Trump really was trying to violate that statutes? That's why uh, you know, we've never really charged a past president for right. federal crimes. It's hard to prove. And then the more important thing, I think, is we have to always be conscious of what incentives are we creating for future presidents? You know, is, is going after Trump this way, uh, trying to uh, indict him for something, I think, not as important as, say, January 6th, something like mishandling classified information that is part of what he thinks were mementos from his office. Is that really worthy of the momentous step of indicting uh, a president for the first time in history? Well, it seems that Merrick Garland, John, is in a position not unlike Gerald Ford, who had to decide what Richard Nixon's legal fate would be. Would he allow the process to carry out and actually have Nixon be dragged into court? Or would he pardon Nixon and and move beyond this? And it ended up costing Ford his presidency, but he was looking at the national good. I'm not suggesting Donald Trump should be pardoned here for anything. Obviously, Joe Biden's not going to do that. But this is part, I think, what Merrick Garland has to weigh, John, and that's really what is best for the nation's fabric. Is it going Mm -hmm. after the president on these charges or moving on, maybe just settling on the president's lawyers as a target but not going after the president himself, understanding what the blowback will be from doing that? I I agree, Bill. I think that, uh, and this is not about the law, what the law compels. This is about what we call prosecutorial discretion. It's about judgment and wisdom. Uh, you could indict President Trump. You could try to go after him for these kinds of violations. Just like you could say uh, New York State could try to indict him for you know his company maybe inflating the value of his assets when it was applying, applying for mortgages and, and applying for loans from banks. Right. But you got to exercise, as you said, a lot of the factors you mentioned go into this much more delicate issue is... Uh, should the government use its awesome powers to go after President Trump for something like this? Uh, I would say, and I, I imagine Attorney General Garland thinks about it this way too, is if you're going to indict a former president, it should be for something important. Maybe, you know, in the Nixon case, maybe it would have been for ordering the CIA and the FBI to cover up, right, an effort by your own reelection committee to uh, cheat on an election. And maybe if Ford hadn't parted Nixon, the, right, the national nightmare would have gone on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, I would say Garland would be wise to keep his powder dry to see if there's any link between Trump and the January 6th. That's the, that's the real. And I really think that's why both sides have really ratcheted up uh, the stakes in this. It's like a it's like a proxy war during the Cold War. Right? In the Cold right. War, the Soviet United States. You know, they kind of fought through proxies. It kept things limited. They could get a sense of each other's will and capabilities. 
I think this this confrontation, this dust up is really just like a proxy war in preparation for the real fight, which is going to be over. Did President Trump have any involvement in the January 6th attack on the Capitol? Right. Uh, here's one thought, John. Uh, would Donald Trump lose his security clearance uh, based on this? Uh, so and, if, he, and, if, and if he lost his security clearance, how could he be president of the United States? Well, Donald Trump already, I believe, lost his security clearance. My uh, okay. understanding, this is the interesting thing. is, And this is like another, I mean, if you're uh, people who support Trump, I think they have some reason to think he's being treated unfairly because uh, I don't think past presidents have lost their security clearance, as you said. No. And, we'll, and, and, we'll, and we'll get to the FBI in a minute because that's yeah. part of this discussion yeah. too. But. but, you know, like, you know, the past president, uh, and, and so in fact, at Mar-a-Lago, there used to be what we called a SCIF, a, a secure facility where intelligence documents would be kept that he could use while he was president. My understanding is that when President Biden took office, he said, nope, President Trump doesn't get to have one of those, which I think would be a courtesy for other former presidents who want to, say, write their memoirs and review documents when they do right. so. Um, and so that, in part, is what created the problem in the first place, because Mar-a-Lago did have a facility to keep documents like this, and President Biden took it away. And other words, he's taking away President Trump's security clearances the minute he left office. So uh, the other thing is, um, since the sir, suppose I think your question was really going to suppose President suppose Donald Trump won again and became yeah, let's president. see, he's president yeah. in 2025, but yeah. he doesn't have a security clearance. So how could he act on intelligence? If he doesn't have a security clearance. <laughs> so, so the so the uh, this actually is answered as a matter of constitutional law, thankfully. So we don't have to ask the policy question of should we give Trump a security clearance based mm -hmm. on his background. So the president uh, automatically has a security clearance because uh, under the it's actually interesting classification and all the secure clearance stuff. It's not really created by Congress at all. It's created right. by the president under his unilateral executive authority. So uh, the Supreme Court actually, uh, in a case called Department of Navy versus Egan, uh, actually clearly said uh, classification comes from the president because of his commander in chief and executive authority. And so it's up to him who gets it and who loses it. But the president himself is, you know, the source of it. So he always has the right to access all classified information. Okay, John, since we're talking about the FBI, uh, let's get directly to the FBI now. Uh, you mentioned the photo. Uh, if you watch CNN or MSNBC this morning, that photo was on just round the clock. They couldn't get it enough. And I, I tried to figure out how to make it the background for my uh, <laughs> Zoom appearance, but exactly. I couldn't get it to work. Um, but this is part of polarized America, John. So mm -hmm. half the country will look at that and they'll think, aha, look at what Donald Trump did. He is a bad man. He's a criminal. This is the left's narrative that essentially that Donald Trump is a criminal at heart. And it's just a matter of finding the one thing to charge him with. It's almost like uh, Al Capone, if you will, just uh, just find somebody, something will stick to the wall. If it's not his taxes, his business dealings, it's documents, it's Ukraine, you name it and so forth. And so that's the left's feeling on this, but the right feels that the man's persecuted. And the right has a conversation here to be had because if we look at the FBI's track record, John, it's not a very pretty picture. Uh, we go back to the Russia hoax in 2016. We go back to James Comey, who at all times is wrapping himself in the flag. Uh, remember, Comey uh, saw fit to weigh in on the Kavanaugh hearings. Remember, where he suggested that Kavanaugh should be impeached based on uh, his testimony, not being able to recollect words in a yearbook, I think was the uh, phrase there. So he's, he's a partisan. Peter Strzok, John, uh, the former deputy assistant director of the FBI's counterintelligence division, Linda 
investigation of the Russian interference in the election. Um, turns out that he had his thumb on the scale. He's having an affair with a fellow agent, uh, left the agency in disgrace. He's now on TV commenting on this. Uh, only in America can Peter Strzok be on TV as a nonpartisan uh, commentator. Um, just the other day, John, a fellow named Timothy Tebow. That's not Tim Tebow, the football <laughs> player, but Tim Tebow, the FBI agent based in Washington. Uh, news report that he resigned from his position because he had uh, tried to shut down a criminal investigation, criminal probe into Hunter Biden before the 2020 election. Uh, then you have Mark Zuckerberg on uh, Joe Rogan um, uh, just the other day saying that the FBI came to him and told him that there's Russian disinformation all over the place. So wink nod, you better sit on stories and Thus, Hunter Biden got sat on at Facebook, plus other stories as well. Now, that's very complicated. Zuckerberg's probably going to have to appear in front of a Republican House next year to explain exactly what he said. <laughs> the point of all this, John, is that the FBI has just suffered a lot of body blows over the last five years during the era of Trump. And so if you are watching this at home and you are sorry, follow the FBI's um, uh, actions, there is a question of trust with that agency. So what what is the future of the FBI here? So. Uh, Two things is I, I trace a lot of what we're going through now with these documents and Trump fighting with the Justice Department back to Jim Comey and his uh, scheming, I think, during the lead up to the 2016 elections. And then right after that, as you, you point out, he uh, first uh, cleared Hillary Clinton of mishandling classified information right. in numbers much larger than this. Or recall that Hillary um, had created her own private unsecured server network, which was through which lots of classified email was passed, cleared her and then said she, he was reopening the investigation and then cleared her again right before right. the election. Exactly. Uh, right. And then the uh, Russia collusion hoax and the Mueller investigation all that so that reflected as you said a, a somewhat politicized fbi at least at the leadership level i do not think this is going on at the field offices as i'm with your uh you know on the street agents so you you can't blame trump i think and you see that in the histories that set out in the warrant applications and the doc motion last night i don't think you can blame trump for being suspicious of the fbi when they show up at his house and say we'd like to look at all the documents you have here and we want to search for classified information because, you know, what if they run across a binder that says uh, John Eastman's plan to overturn the 2020 election? Well, they'd right. be able to keep that, too, and use that for their own investigations. So uh, what happens? So, the, you know, what the fight we're having now, I think, is the long term consequence of the mistakes that were made by the FBI in 2016, 2017, interfering with a presidential election. So what happens after this? So first, let me uh, disclose that uh, Chris Ray, the current director of the FBI is a friend of mine. We're in the same class in law school. Uh, we often sat next to each other in class. You know, he's W on Y, you know, we were saying alphabetical order, you know, we're right next to each other. Uh, so I, I knew my, you know, we used to hang around a lot in law school. I think he's a very upstanding guy. I think he is trying to get the FBI um, out of politics, but I think that's an impossible task right now. Because, as you say, there's a lot of people who feel President Trump's been singled out. I, I think that obviously the, the, the House Investigatory Committee is singling him out. And I think President Biden is uh, singling, singling him out in a number of ways. And so I don't know how the FBI extricates itself from this. Uh, it's, I, I don't see the path forward for them other than some kind of reorganiza reorganization of the FBI. Now, I don't know whether people at Hoover have looked at this or considered it, um, but you know, before 
J. Edgar Hoover, different Hoover, right? Um, you didn't need to have a gigantic FBI. You could, and people have studied this, you could split it up and have a department uh, that's focused primarily on terrorism and espionage. And then you could devolve a lot of what the FBI does in the criminal law area to different agencies. Like, why doesn't the Treasury Department do more? Or right. the, the FDA, the, you know, let each agent, agency um, enforce its own laws rather than relying just on the FBI. And in our country, most criminal law is still handled by state and local authorities who handle the have their own large forces of police and prosecutors. The great vast majority of police in the country are still, even today, you know, uh, handled by local and state authorities. The uh, New York Police Department has more police officers than the FBI has agents. And so right. maybe that might be the long-term answer is that the FBI uh, is an agency that's just grown too big and unwieldy. And so it becomes vulnerable to this kind of politicization by uh, you know, career bureaucrats who think they know better, right? That's yeah, kind of what you saw that with the Trumping. They knew better what was in the national interest than the American people through election. Yeah, John, it's analogous to the uh, to uh, the government's disease uh, research operation and that the CDC originally started as, I think, disease doctors or, or disease busters. Or they had some phrase for that. Uh, but over the years, it's morphed into other things, including research, which then ties us to Anthony Fauci and eventually the, the Wuhan uh, case. The FBI over the years has morphed into, among other things, intelligence gathering, counterintelligence. And so that's the question here. Should the FBI be engaged in that or go back to its core mission under Hoover back in the 20s and 30s and be more domestic? and anti-crime. But the real question here, John, the old joke, the old adage that FBI stands for what? Fidelity, bravery, and integrity. It's the I word. It's integrity. How do they restore integrity to the agency? Yes. And part of that is going to have to involve regaining the trust of Congress and the executive branch, as well as the American people. And I, I, you know, maybe it is something that's just hardwired into the FBI because of Hoover. I mean, you look at the history of the FBI and it uh, you know, it, it sort of wasn't really uh, a pr- ever really contemplated it would become as large, as important as this. You know, people may remember, uh, you know, Hoover focused on bank robberies and kidnappings because they got a lot of headlines and they were easy to solve in general. Um, it, it is it is true that there are all kinds of federal crimes, but I wonder whether we really need to go about prosecuting all of them with this large national police force instead of one that's more focused on protecting country from external threats, you know, external threats that get into the country, which is kind of what the British do, actually, you know, they have that they have this kind of division between uh, what they call MI5 and MI6. I I can't remember which one James Bond works for, but he works for the external service. And then there's an internal (laughs) service, which is primarily involved with catching spies within the US. I would still have an FBI for that. But the domestic policing function I think they might have grown too large and have become too, uh, maybe, I mean, as you said, like the rest of the disease that hits a bureaucracy, you have a cadre of people in lots of agencies who think uh, they know, be- and a lot of people who are worried and think about this, and we right. worry about people in the bureaucracy think they know best, that there is a single answer, right answer to everything. It's all a matter of science and not a matter of policy choice that we should decide through our elections. 
Yeah, I think, John, the attorney general also has to do some thinking here. Remember, Eric Holder, when he was Barack Obama's attorney general, called himself, what, the president's wingman? I think Wingman, right. <laughs> well, that doesn't speak to impartial justice now, does it? Um, but in the case of Merrick Garland, uh, if you really want to play the three-dimensional chess conspiratorial card, uh, having Donald Trump in the news is a gift for Democrats in a midterm election. Why? We're not talking about the economy. We're not talking mm-hmm. about inflation. We're not talking about, well, the president's talking about crime now. We're talking about Donald Trump, which does two things. Number one, it makes voters tired and confuses voters. And secondly, it takes away the Republicans' message. And so if you want to be kind of conspiratorial here and really go to the dark side, you can question the timing of doing this. It brings Trump back in the news. Uh, and some would say it eggs him on to run in 2024. If you want to take that at a step, if you will, it's just awfully beneficial to one party, it seems. And so that again, makes people just more leery about the judicial apparatus in Washington. I, I, I mean, I don't think that's what it was. Uh, in fact, yeah, I and think I'm not, not saying it is either, yeah, but yeah. it's just it's, <laughs> in our society, it's easy for people to go to these places. For yeah, example, when, that, you see, sure. when you see that photo of the documents, you know, if Trump hasn't already, someone's going to post, this is planted evidence, if you will. So again, when this kind of pops up just, you know, a couple of months before the midterm election, it really does change the dynamics of the election in that regard. You think, hmm. Yeah, well, I think one thing that you, you see is uh, Biden actually trying to distance himself in, uh, from this whole investigation. He, he, the, uh, he's referred to it as an independent investigation by the Justice Department, which actually doesn't compute under the Constitution. You know, under the Constitution, the only the president is the one who enforces the law and the attorney general is just as a constitutional matter, is just his assistant in carrying out the law. And so it's it's just constitutionally impossible for the president to say, oh, no, that attorney general, he's got to make his own judgments. And uh, yeah, that, that just doesn't work. The other thing is, um, I think President Biden actually has made a series of decisions that show that he was involved. For example, uh, he decided to waive executive privilege over all of the documents that are at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, now, there's an interesting constitutional issue that the Trump people are going to be pushing about whether past presidents can still have that kind of confidentiality anyway, even if the current president waives it. But President Biden had to have made a decision to waive it, which means he must have been briefed about this. And of course, as you're saying earlier, President Biden removed Trump's security clearance, removed his secure facility at Mar-a-Lago. So for President Biden to pretend, oh, I've got nothing to do with this, and this is uh, just a, you know, a neutral attorney general pursuing this is not does not quite fit the facts or the constitution. Mm-hmm. Final question on this, we'll move on to the next topic, John. Uh, for those on the right listening to this, is this just a function of Donald Trump and the just sort of dog whistle disorient effect that Donald Trump has on politics? Or if you are a conservative and you really do live in fear of the FBI and the government in general, is this something that Republicans can fear in general? In other words, would Ron DeSantis face something like that if he were running for president or Tim Scott or Glenn Youngkin or Nikki Haley? Or is this just uniquely Trump? I think it's uniquely Trump for two reasons. You know, first, just think about the reaction. Uh, And I think this is where the Justice Department really miscalculated when they started this whole affair is a lot of people might not have decided to publicize they were the subject of a search for criminal evidence of criminal activity in the first place. Somehow, Trump, Trump, his instinct is, is to turn this, he pulled this kind of PR jujitsu on the Justice Department well, and turned this into a major scandal. He thrives on victimhood. That's why, John, it's yeah. persecution. The mm-hmm. fake news is after me. You know, the government's after me. This is how he fires up yeah. his base. It's how he raised money off his base. Yeah, the, the I think a normal politician 
or a candidate or former president would have not brought any attention to it, returned to documents, and right. we never would have heard about it, really. Uh, and then the, the, the second thing is, but it also, I, I do think, I can't see this happening with the uh, other potential nominees for 2024 because uh, they weren't president. Uh, they uh, didn't have that kind of presidency where they were trying to break all the norms, like the bull in the norm China shop, and don't have, uh, as you said, this kind of victimhood, but also this kind of flagrancy with the way the rules are. Right? I can't see like Mike Pompeo uh, taking classified documents home with them or Tim Scott, you know, <laughs> stuffing classified documents, you know, behind his time magazine. covers. Sandy Berger. Yes. Yeah, there was Sandy Berger with the underwear incident as we yes. refer to it. <laughs> but he, but you know, part of Trump's, I think, appeal to his supporters is that he's a breaker of norms and, you know, flagrantly defines, uh, defies the standard operating procedures of Washington, D.C., and that might be his attraction, but also it's his great fault, too. It's like he's watched uh, Scarface one too many times. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. Little friend. <laughs> okay, John, let's quickly, let's shift topics here. I want to uh, just get your thoughts on uh, student loans. President Biden last week announcing a plan to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for Pell Grant recipients and up to $10,000 for others who qualify. That means, John, individuals making less than $125,000, couples under $250,000. Uh, John, the, uh, the legal grounding for this, the Biden administration put out a memo explaining its legal rationale. The memo said that the 2003 HEROES Act, HEROES standing for Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, gives the Education Secretary the power to grant relief from student loan requirements for individuals affected by a quote-unquote national emergency. So, John, we're not in a war at the moment. Um, the pandemic is still going on, but is not raging as it was three years ago. Are we in the midst of a national emergency? And is this action by the President constitutional? Great questions, Bill. There's two questions. Is it uh, allowed by uh, existing statutes, and then could President Biden have done it constitutionally? And, and I have an essay that I uh, posted up at Hoover about emergency powers during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. the Supreme Court has actually been very suspicious of presidential power during a pandemic. It has been very generous to presidents who claim emergency powers during wartime to fight the war. Uh, you know, Lincoln in the Civil War is the best example, but FDR too, and President George W. Bush as well. Uh, but this is uh, emergency powers turned inwards. And there the Supreme Court has been very, has been quite skeptical in recent years, particularly in the COVID context. So uh, you may recall that President Biden tried to enact a nationwide vaccine mandate for all people who worked in you know, offices and factories. The Supreme Court struck that down. And then President Biden also tried just by direct presidential order to, uh, to keep a moratorium on evicting people, uh, for tenants from uh, rented apartments. And the Supreme Court struck that down too. And so the court's been very skeptical of this. So instead the Biden administration is relying on statute. I don't think the law gives them the power that they're claiming. Uh, it's the statute you read from the Higher Education Act has right. provisions about loans, you know, because the federal government took over the student loan business, which maybe is the deeper flaw in all of this is why is the government running the student loan program? Mm -hmm. But there's a provision that says that the Secretary of Education can waive uh, or modify loan amounts 
during a national emergency or war. Uh, so if you were just to read that part of the law and stop right there, you might say, oh, maybe President Biden has some case. Uh, but then it says, the rest of the statute says, so that the borrower is no worse off financially because of the war or national emergency than they would have been otherwise. And then if you look at the congressional debates, they say, and this law is passed during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars in early in the early 2000s, passed, I think, by all but I think it only had one dissenting vote. The idea is the con- people on the floor of Congress said, oh, we don't want a reservist who's called up to go to Iraq to be considered in default of their student loans because they're in a war zone. Or we don't want people who are dealing with Hurricane Katrina you know, during national emergency to have to worry about paying their student loans. The obvious idea is that the Secretary of Education would have had the power to suspend payments on student loans while people are dealing with getting called up to military duty or there's been a disaster. And it's really just not to make you better off. Canceling student debt, just canceling it entirely, is actually leaving you better off than you were before COVID. Mm -hmm. That's not about... Just the idea here at best, if you could even claim, which the court seems to be suspicious of, that the entire country is a national emergency zone, you might just say, well, we're going to suspend payments on student loans while people get back on their feet because of the lockdowns because of COVID, which you know kind of ended about a year ago. Uh, but there's no suggestion in the law that you could just cancel everybody's student loans, which is leaving them better off. One other thing, just one last thing, is that the Supreme Court at the end of June decided a case called West Virginia versus EPA, which really makes the Biden's maneuver questionable because the court there said was, we're not going to let agencies uh, make decisions and force policy, you know, issue new policies that have a major economic or social importance right. unless you can clearly show in the law that Congress wanted the agency to have that power. This, uh, I've seen estimates that the cost of this student loan waiver is going to, cancellation is going to range from $300 billion to $600 billion. Uh, some would so say it's meant, some would say up to a trillion dollars. But. Wow, up to a trillion. A tri- yeah, you should get those good fellow guys to calculate it. Instead of arguing <laughs> with each other all the time, let's see Cochran use his calculator and give us the real figure. But, right. right. If it's going to be a trillion dollars, that's actually way more than yeah. the regulation that the Supreme Court struck down <laughs> over the summer in terms of costs okay. on the economy. Okay, so okay. But put, put, put yourself in the head of your of the justice used to clerk for uh, Clarence Thomas, John. How is Clarence Thomas going to process this? Well, I think ju- not just Clarence Thomas, but the other conservatives on the court, they're going to say, well, the statute says don't leave someone better off than they were before COVID. Mm-hmm. And if the Biden administration is going to say there's some implicit power in the Higher Education, Higher Education Act to do this, our new major questions doctrine from the summer is going to say no for something that's going to be 300 billion to a trillion dollars impact on the economy where the statute doesn't clearly say you can do it. You got to go back to Congress. You got to go back and get a vote. And I think this is part of the Supreme court's demand uh, that things go back to the democratic process. It actually ties in in a funny way, Bill, to your questions about the FBI. The court is saying, we're not going to, just automatically trust unelected bureaucrats to make the major policy decisions. And and, and in a way they say, including us, right? Like that's what they said in Dobbs in a way is, you know, we want the people to decide abortion, but we want people 
you know, through our elections, through Congress to decide whether to cancel that. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea, but it should be up to our elected representatives to make it. I, I can't. The hard thing about challenging this in court is whether anybody has what we call standing, whether there's a plaintiff who can challenge the student loan cancellation, because in general, the courts, primarily because of conservative justices like Thomas and Scalia, have been reluctant to allow the courts to be just a forum to challenge public policy decisions people don't like. Somebody right. has to be specially harmed by this program. And that's well, hard to think of. John, wouldn't that be somebody who just doesn't qualify under the parameters? In other words, somebody who makes more than $125,000 or a couple that makes $250,000. I know that's funny optics, yeah. wealthy yeah. people probably, who probably <laughs> well, like those you. Those are already getting it. <laughs> who probably have you know, exclusive, uh, nice degrees with exclusive schools like you, <laughs> Professor you, but, uh, but they were the ones who could show damages, I guess, saying that, look at, you know, where's our relief? Usually that's not a way to get standing is no. um, those guys over there got a benefit yeah. And I'm pretty close. Give me the benefit too. So uh, <laughs> they usually you need to show someone was actually made worse off, harmed. Uh, now we're all harmed, right? If you think about it, all taxpayers are harmed. Right. And so the court has said taxpayers, you can't just bring a case because you're a taxpayer. So you have to show that someone is actually made worse off by the student loan program. So it could be, uh, it could be, for example, companies that help administer the programs. It could be states, maybe states that uh, uh, that run universities. Like I was thinking, I mean, it wouldn't be the University of California, given our political leadership here, but it could be the University of Texas or the University of Florida might sue in some way because they could say, well, if you cancel all the student debt, then there's going to be a lot more demand for seats at our universities and we're going to have to pay more because we're the ones who actually pay for providing education. That's the kind of theory you'd have to get, but it's going to be tough. I think that's the thing that conservative justices are going to have a hard time with because I think they would, given how the two COVID emergency cases came out, I can't see this flying in court. But they're also suspicious of making the court the forum for the resolution of all our political disputes. John, here's who can uh, prove damages, Democratic Senate candidates in Ohio and Pennsylvania, because these are states where about two thirds of the voting population does not have a college degree. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great selling point. the idea that taxpayers have to foot the bill for this does not play well. And so you've seen those candidates, others around the country kind of run from this. But uh, just a few minutes left here. I want to get to one final topic, John. And that is the uh, the news uh, last week. The New York Times uh, reporting that the Marble Freedom Trust, this is a conservative nonprofit group headed by Leonard Leo, friend of yours, I believe, mm -hmm. is receiving one point six billion. That's with a B billion dollars. Uh, and here's what Mr. Leo said uh, in response to this quote, it's high time for the conservative movement to be among the ranks of George Soros, Hong Georg Vies, Arabella Advisors, and other left-wing philanthropists going toe-to-toe -to -toe in the fight to defend our constitution and its ideals. John, briefly tell us who Leonard Leo is and tell us what is he quote-unquote fight to defend the constitution. So you're right. Leonard is a friend of mine. He's a lovely guy. It's, I, I don't like seeing, you know, the left wing media turn him into, you know, this kind of hobby horse right. or this, uh, this image of this <laughs> devil. The, the bad man with a billion and a half dollars. <laughs> He's a bad man. He just doesn't have orange hair <laughs> like the last guy we try to destroy. Now, so, uh, you know, so Leonard is a uh, Leo's a, was the executive director of the Federal Society. And he's the well, he was a very close advisor to President Trump. Um, you look at the press reports, and he's the one who, uh, when Trump was in the primaries and was fighting it out, duking it out with Ted Cruz, he's the one who came up with the idea for Trump of saying, if you really want to 
you know, assuage the concerns of conservatives. Why don't you put out a list of who you'd appoint to the Supreme Court? And we, the Federal Society, will help you come up with those names. And damn, if that didn't work. And then damn, if President Trump didn't keep his word and appoint, you know, three uh, justices to the court who Federalist Society people are very happy with. Um, so since then, you know, and, and he's, he's a very old, good friend of mine. You know, he's a guy, he went to Cornell College, Cornell Law School, he clerked in the D.C. Circuit. I mean, he had, he has a really top flight legal talent that he could have applied if he had wanted to work in a law firm or work in the government. But he chose to spend his, his whole career uh, in the nonprofit world, building the Federal Society into what it was today. Right. I remember when I first met him. In the 80s, the Federal Society, the big national meeting in D.C. was 60 people having a barbecue in somebody's backyard. Now, you know, you have a meeting like that in Washington it has three, four thousand people, prominent lawyers and government officials. come. That's entirely, I feel, because of Leonard Leo and his efforts. And I don't think he's done anything that the left hasn't done before. If, if you think about it, he's just sort of. Uh, trying to build, a, I think, a network that sort of matches what the left has been able to do for much longer. Uh, Let me put the ball in your court, Professor Yu. If I gave you a billion and a half dollars to fight uh, the, the fight the good fight for the Constitution, uh, and you cannot buy a McDonald's franchise with that money, so let's get that out <laughs> right away. What would you do with a billion and a half dollars? Oh, you know, I've always wanted to have my share of the dark, dark money, but I never, no one ever gives me any. No. <laughs> so... Um, I, I actually would spend it on things. So uh, if you think about um, changing public policy, you know, so you talk in the military, right? They talk about the tip of the spear and then, you know, the, you know, the, the wooden piece, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the rest of the spear. And so I think conservatives are very good at the other end of the spear, things like the Hoover Institution, uh, where you come up with research and you think of good ideas about policy, but that's just the start. And so I think conservatives are not good at the rest of the spear. <laughs> we're not that, and we're really not good at the, I think, the tip of the spear. So if you really, I think, wanted to change public policy in a conservative direction, and I, my feeling is this is what Leonard is doing, is you would spend more resources on not coming up with the ideas, but actually turning them into policy wins. Mm-hmm. And that's doing things like, you know, you you know, Mel, Milton Friedman, for example, Hoover comes up with the great idea. Oh, why don't we have vouchers for education rather than state-run bureaucracies? Well, that's a great idea. But then, who drafts the law that a state legislature would pass and figures out all the problems that you'd have to overcome state by state? That's the part I think that conservatives spend less time on because uh, I, I don't know why it's expensive and it's hard work and it's you know it's a sort of ground. Warfare against, you know, teachers unions, for example, and state right. bureaucracies. That's, I think, where uh, if you wanted to get more conservative policy wins, that's where you would spend the billion dollars. Yeah. So getting people not- elected, getting school board members elected, state legislators are elected, developing like actual legislation that could be passed. So you're suggesting it's not so much the ideas factory as it is marketing and selling the ideas. Yeah, I wouldn't call it marketing and selling, right. but yeah, no, I no, I I think conservatives. This is the I don't know. I mean, I'm biased, of course, but gosh, I think the story of the last forty years is that conservatives have won the battle of ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look at conservatives versus liberals, you saw this on uh, uh, the Supreme Court term just ended. You know, a lot right. of the most innovative ideas are coming from conservatives and have been, and I find liberals 
often are just playing defensive warfare, right? Mm-hmm. They're like the Germans in World War II against the Russians. They're just trying to give up land as slowly as possible and um, <laughs> make it as expensive as possible. But I don't, you know, see the you know, sort of great, great revolutionary ideas about, say, crime, schools, you know, the economy coming out of uh, liberals. They seem kind of wedded to the 1930s, 1960s model of Keynesian economics and big state bureaucracies uh, filled with experts to run mm-hmm. everything, which doesn't really work in our decentralized economy. So I, I think that's the better way I, maybe it is selling and marketing maybe it's but maybe you just think of it as elections well maybe he <laughs> right? could maybe he could revisit uh his experience with judges john and uh maybe he needs to sit down and develop lists of candidates and then with his billion and a half dollars he could do independent expenditures in federal elections left and right and help market ideas to these candidates and get them elected because you you're right conservatives have intellectually won the battle over the last 40 years but conservatives still struggle you know to get footholds in elections in certain states in america so you you have to win hearts and minds at the end of the day oh, bill this is your your realm not mine but i i completely agree i mean i'm looking at the uh, midterm elections and i hate to say it i agree with senator mcconnell this is a year where there should be a republican wave and you could see conservative ideas coming to fore like they did in 94 when i worked in congress i was inspired to work in congress in 94 because that election or 2010 but when it comes to retail politics, we've got a lot of weird candidates <laughs> who, are, you know, who, are, who might, I don't know, seem to be behind in the polls when the ideas and the economic conditions are such we should, conservatives should do really well. So maybe it is a problem of you know, picking candidates, running elections, running the independent expenditure packs and getting the message out. Well, and part of the challenge is the guy down in Mar-a-Lago, John, because he just doesn't leave the news cycle and he doesn't want to leave the news cycle. And let's close with this. Uh, this is just an unusual stretch in American history. You have to go back, John, to 19, the period between 1908 and 1912 to find a former American president who was still very active in the political mainstream. And I, by that, I mean, not just a former president who went out and campaigned because Bill Clinton has campaigned, so has Barack Obama, um, but Theodore Roosevelt hanging over the Republican Party and then eventually running as an independent in 1912. So he was still viable. Over Cleveland, of course, is the example of the former president who ran again and got his job back after four years. But this is unusual turf for the American people. Presidents, usually they leave office and they tend to go away. The only times they pop up are when they do events at their libraries or the obligatory bad story about too much honoraria for kind of a question from a questionable source. But you do not have former presidents like Donald Trump sitting out there and both, you know, dominating news uh, in, from cycle to cycle, but also looming over his party as a potential candidate again. Well, it's it's both uh, conservatives and liberals are at fault because, as you can see from the January 6th committee investigation, Democrats don't want to let him go either. Right? As you suggested, oh, they, in some way, uh, there's a Machiavellian political way. They love having him at the center of attention, too, because it reminds people you know, a majority of Americans, why they voted the way they did in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, we haven't had someone like this, uh, you know, someone who sort of stood over the political world like this since Teddy Roosevelt. Right. And uh, people forget, you know, Roosevelt ran, maybe people forget Roosevelt ran again when he uh, could have faded away, but he wanted to be president again. And because he ran, he split the Republican vote and allow Woodrow Wilson, not the most charismatic politician ever, to uh, sneak into the White House. And that's when this major trend that we're worried about, this this progressive theory of government, the idea of taking 
political decisions away from democracy, concentrating power in the hands of uh, unaccounted ex- unaccountable experts. It was Wilson who made who started that. He's the one who made that happen. And so in a way, Teddy Roosevelt made that happen. And he I don't I'm not comparing Teddy Roosevelt and Donald Trump in any way. In ter- I mean, in terms of uh, character or, right. you know, public policy views or anything. But they had the same effect, I think, on politics in both. You're you're very you're very right to compare him to Trump to Teddy Roosevelt in that respect. Just- no, there, there's there is an important difference here. Teddy Roosevelt ran in a small set of Republican primaries. He did very well in the primaries, yeah. but the party did not want him as a nominee. They gave it to Taps. So Roosevelt got screwed over by his party, and that yeah. drove him into running as the independent, the Bull Moose. I don't see Trump being rolled by his party, if anything. And I know there's some conversations we've been having with Republican consultants. He still has a very strong hold on the primary electorate among Republicans. So just like in 2016, it's hard to see him being ganged up and denied. But the difference, John, would be that Teddy Roosevelt did run in 1912 uh, uh, against Taft and against Wilson. Trump could run in 2024 against Joe Biden or a Democrat to be named but he might still have this legal cloud over his head. And that's going to be the final question here. How long is he going to be like, who's the character now in uh, little Abner who had the, uh, <laughs> the cloud over his head at all times. Now you're uh, thinking of a uh, pig pen from uh, pig pen and peanut, the cloud of dust <laughs> behind him, but how long can this dust cloud hang over Donald Trump? I mean, at some point we have to get resolution here, either, you know, fish or cut bait. You have to either indict mm-hmm. him on something or move on. Mm-hmm. Well, I, think that the Biden administration, if they are going to take that step, has to do it w- at least more than a year away from the 2024 election. So they've got this window of about the upcoming year. Uh, and again, I don't think they're going to indict him about mishandling classified information. Uh, the best thing for everybody would be for the department to step back now and say, we've got the documents. Uh, we don't need to pursue this any further. And for Trump to step back and say, you know, because he he'll you know he and his staff will be fortunate if the department doesn't keep going and try to you know bring charges. So I think what's really the main event is going to be in the upcoming year. Uh, you're going to see whether the department is going to have enough evidence to indict Trump for January 6. So I think what you've seen in the hearings, and we know the department is conducting a criminal investigation too. But what you've seen in the congressional hearings is you've seen Trump clearly wanted to stop the electoral vote if he could. And he you know, tried to ask Pence to do that. You also saw these organized uh, attackers on the Capitol that tried to prevent the electoral vote. What you don't have is the smoking gun that links Trump to that attack. I don't think the other things Trump did, like trying to persuade Pence to not count the electoral votes, trying to ask state election officials uh, to find more, more votes. I don't think that's coercion that would love, rise to the level of any kind of criminal conduct. I think the link to justify charges, again, again, unprecedented, first in the time in our history, charges against a, a former president would be for Trump to have actually, or you know, Trump acting through people actually in some way in touch with uh, the conspiracy that carried out the attack on the Capitol. And we're going to see. We don't know. I'm of open mind. I mean, if I see that evidence, then I think President Trump should be indicted for that. But I have I haven't seen the evidence yet. So you think you think the Justice Department is going to wait for the January 6th committee to make its findings to issue its report and then decide legal action against Trump? Or are we talking two different things oh. here between January 6th oh. and the records in Mar-a-Lago? 
Oh, now you're asking questions that only a separation of powers no, geek no, like me are really Because what you're because what you're talking yeah. what you're talking about is how many bites out of the Trump apple can yeah. you take if you're the justice? No, no, Department. this is uh, this is really important because if you're at the department at the Justice Department, you don't want the congressional hearings to be going on, right? Because not only are you making it difficult for Trump to get a fair trial, but the congressional committees might strike deals, they might make promises, they might put out. Uh, information that uh, is not done through the standard protections of the fifth and sixth amendments. You know, they, mm -hmm. they can try to deny people their right to counsel. They can ask things that, which we saw already, things that are hearsay would never be admitted in trial. Uh, and so uh, the congressional hearings, they're building political opposition to president Trump or reminding people why they didn't like him in the first place, but they could really pollute the waters for an investigation. I'll add the last time we had this big, uh, parallel investigation that Khan, you mentioned, you have a con big congressional investigation going on at the same time as a criminal investigation was Iran-Contra. Iran-Contra, right. And Iran-Contra. And Oliver North and John Poindexter were convicted at the trial court, but their convictions were overturned by the appeals courts because the courts said that they're testifying in front of the committees. Uh, they were given grants of immunity, protected them from any kind of prosecution. If the January 6th committee really wants to get the story and they're not doing something unconstitutional, which is really waging a real prosecution, which they're not allowed to do. They might very well want to give immunity to people like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and Mark Meadows, because you want the story. Right. It's a Congress. You actually shouldn't care about uh, whether they're prosecuted or not. If they do that, that will completely screw over the prosecutors. And that's what happened with Iran-Contra. Okay. Well, you're just telling us to stay tuned into 2023. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but it's going to be that window. I think it'll be this window from uh, starting this fall until maybe the very beginning of 2023. The department's got, as you said, Fisher cut bait. And Trump is also going to have to Fisher cut bait in terms of his presidency. And he got to decide if he's going to run again. And we don't know if he's going to announce before November or after November. And, you know, we can flip a coin if he's going to do it or not. Don't come to me. I've been wrong every step of the way with Donald Trump. But, you know, again, there is that track. And then you have the specter of him actually being an active presidential candidate. At the same time, the federal government is deciding we're not to lower the boom on him. Hmm. Yeah, I, we, we haven't had this before. I mean, we've read about it. You know, you see it in other countries where... Uh, uh, former president or sitting president or candidate for president actually under active criminal investigation. And yeah. we have seen it. You, you know, these stories. we have seen it with um, Senate races, you know, like Ted Stevens is the famous case. Again, in the end, the department was found by a court to have really screwed up that prosecution because they went after a guy during a re-election campaign. Wasn't clear actually that he did anything wrong and his you know, the, the investigation prosecution prevented him from getting reelected. That's the, that's the, actually, that's the red line. When we start talking about all this in the beginning, the mistakes that the FBI made tracing it back to 2016 is the department, you know, our, the, the law enforcement people should let the American people decide. What I would say is let the January 6th committee go ahead, put out all the information out there. The department can put out information and then let the American people decide in the 2024 elections, whether they want to have Trump around or not. Right. I, I worry that we let criminal investigation, the criminal law sort of substitute for the electoral process. Okay. Well, one thing we established, John, this is a full employment act for you because it's oh. not, like you, not like you won't be doing commentary <laughs> on this for the foreseeable future. I, Trump's really good for the family business, for the small numbers of us who made a specialty of studying the powers of the presidency. Okay. <laughs> hey, John, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was a fun talk. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. Really enjoyed it. 
You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. That is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of John Yu and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. I also mentioned John's excellent book on Donald Trump, Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. It's it's still on Amazon, isn't it, John? You ever been delisted? So. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to be. Then I could get more dark money. Exactly. And just to keep an eye out on your television, your radio, your podcast, wherever John Yu is, he'll be talking about this, as I said, for the foreseeable future. And we're proud to have him here at the Hoover Institution. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.